It's five reals from Brazil, and um, that's worth a lot of money, believe me. Okay, wow. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not worth anything here. But when you go to, uh, to Brazil, it'll buy you a taxi ride for about a quarter of a mile. It's so expensive there. Um, but anyway, that was very good. Next, next, next. Okay. Why don't you take your hand like this. Put it out. Try not to um, poke anybody's eye out. Okay. Okay. Put it out to the side of you. And go like this one time. Okay. All right. Just, you're just, just getting ready. Okay. Now, what I'd like you to do is very slowly but very surely take this circle and bring it closer to your face. Okay. Are you ready? You see what we're doing now? Okay. Okay. Take it closer to your face. Bring it all the way to your face. And then put it right on your chin like this. Okay. How many of you put it on your chin? Yeah, a couple of people did. Oh, maybe two people did that. Okay, very good. Now, what's the what's the moral to the story? I don't know, um, but it's kind of fun to do. But what I'd like to tell my international students that I teach, the first one we just do because we get tired after we've been studying English all day long, and we want to loosen up and limber up. Uh, so this is an exercise before you go out to love the world, to uh, realize how difficult it is sometimes to communicate the message to somebody who's never heard. But the other thing is that what you say and what you do, sometimes what you do is stronger than what you say. And most of you speak English pretty well, I imagine. But, and you hear English very well, but you saw what I did and not heard what I said. Our message needs to go together. The gospel of Christ needs to go together with the life of the gospel of Christ, right? It's a very obvious thing. And as you go out with joy and as you go out with the spirit, you want that life to match. And especially when you're almost finished and you're almost ready to come back, but you're not finished because on the way back to this school, you will still meet that one other person on the way back here when you least expect it and when you're dirt tired is when God is also going to use you. I don't, it didn't have a huge impact, I think, in Japan. There's one lasting person that through, through my life, in God's grace, this guy came to know the Lord and it was at a time when I didn't want him to come over to my house. And I thought he was using me and my wife to learn German. He's interested in German and my wife speaks German. And he invited himself over to our house, a stranger, I didn't know who he was, and he invited himself over because he said, I want to learn German. And I looked at my wife and I went, not tonight. I've just been with you know, about 600 students today in my different classes. I was really tired. And she said, yes, that's fine. And he came over and he's the one person in Japan that I think I left the greatest lasting impression on, this one guy, when I was tired. So as you go out and you're tired and you've about had it, remember that your actions are still speaking and people are still looking at what you say. So as I explained to my international students, you can hear the difference, you can see the difference in people's messages when they don't match up. When somebody says, hey, how are you doing? And you say, wonderful. <laughs> the, ma the message isn't matching at all. And we know this. And, and even international students without a lot of knowledge in the language, they can see it and they can feel it. 
And of course, Americans are very sensitive to this and can see it even more. And so nobody's asking you to be angels and to be perfect, but know that the life needs to match the words. And this is always our, our biggest challenge for us. I'd like to share a little bit about uh, myself. I hate to say this because it sounds like my life is interesting or that I'm really arrogant or something, but there are lessons that we can all learn through people's lives, and I hope you can learn something through mine. And the, the young years, the wonder years or something, I don't know uh, what we would call those. But I grew up in church, and it was not an advantage for me in many ways. My dad was a pastor. He was a pastor of that church over there and a pastor of a church in Chicago and a pastor of a church in Michigan and a pastor of a church in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and then here. And at the age of 12, we came to this place. And um, it, it was, uh, well, I'd like to share a little bit about growing up in the church. Maybe some of you have done that too, and I'd like to share about it. But uh, my parents really loved me, and I guess yours do too. And they really helped me. And they loved me and they gave me to the Lord at a very young age because I have the wrong shaped blood cells, red blood cells. I have spherocytosis and I still do. And actually all of you do too, but you only have a couple of spherocytes, which means a round shaped red blood cell and I impact with them. I don't know how I got them. My brother David, who's a little bit older than I am, has um, some. My oldest brother has just a few, and I got just packed with these red blood cells that are the wrong shape. Well, no big wow, except when your blood goes through your spleen, which is a filter, your, your spleen is like a human torture, blood torture chamber. It's very narrow, and the blood has to go through that, and it filters out the bad blood, because your red blood cells can't get through that, that chamber of your spleen very easily. And after they go through a couple of times, they just break down. And so I couldn't uh, get enough blood um, replenished fast enough. And so here's my dad, uh, pastor, great man, and his son is dying uh, at the age of a couple months. And they've given me blood transfusions and they have no clue what's wrong with me. And uh, this was before the advent of, of what they do now on a routine basis. I was. I may be, I don't know, I may be in one of those uh, journals of what to do um, when you don't know what to do. And they did it. Um, but a Chinese doctor, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, happened to be visiting Chicago for a conference. And my doctor said, will you please come in and look at this, this boy? He's dying and we don't know what's wrong with him. And uh, they, they ended up taking out my spleen, and which is... Uh, uh, fairly complicated at a very young age like that, although it does happen more now with more frequency to more people. But my dad had to surrender me and give me to the Lord. And he, he found a passage in the book of Mark where, where Jesus uh, met someone who was unclean and, and the man said, can you heal me, Lord? And Jesus said, uh, the, the man said to the Lord, if you will, please make me whole, make me clean. And the Lord said, I will. And my dad prayed that over my life when I was a little baby. Will you please make him well? And when I was 19 years old, for some reason, I came upon that scripture. I had read it before, and it just moved me to tears. And I said to my dad, this is the most precious passage of scripture. And he said, I know. I prayed that over your life when you were a little baby, and our whole church prayed for you. And I was a very frustrated pastor because God was supposed to be doing me favors because I went all out to be a pastor for him and he was letting me down and it was a crisis in my heart that my, my little baby was dying. 
So, you know, you don't know all these kinds of things. They don't always tell you these until you get older. And you, really, did that happen? Or Is that right? Was I always weak and sick when I was a little kid? And, and they said yes. And uh, then when I was four years old, an interesting experience happened. I was playing Cowboys and, Indian, in, Cowboys and Indians with my brother David. And my brother David was six and I was four. And he had me down. And he was the Indian, the preferred role at that time. It's a very cool role, be the Indian. And I was a cowboy and he said, Mark, I'm going to scalp you. And you know what? He said, if I scalp you and you die, you're going to go to hell because you're not a Christian yet. <laughs> now, I, I have to take my hat off to my brother. He had just become a Christian and he was exercising this, the, the spiritual discipline of evangelism. And so his, one of his first attempts at evangelism was, Mark, it's over, buddy. You better get your life right. And I didn't know much about heaven or hell or anything, but I, uh, he said, and you know, Mark, you're the only one in our family who's not a Christian. And I just screamed bloody murder. <laughs> Mom! And I just screamed and screamed, Mom, 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 Mom! And she came into the room and she said, David, get off Mark's chest. And, and she said, what did you do? You know, she was really mad at David. And, and, and all I knew is that I was going to go to hell without, and I was going to be without my mom and dad. I didn't care about Jesus, and I didn't care about heaven, but I didn't want to be without my mom and dad. I'm only four years old. And so, did I become a Christian? Did, I, did, did my head go through the womb of the Spirit, and did I emerge at that time? I have no idea. But, I prayed with my mom at that time, the age of four, and I, I don't know what my prayer was exactly. I bet it was, please let me be with my mom and dad in heaven. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But the, the Lord honors the weirdest and strangest prayers, and I don't doubt that, that the Lord honored that one too. I prayed with a, a senile woman at a nursing home. I used to work at a nursing home here when I was 16 and 17 years old, and, and uh, I've, I've had some very interesting prayers with people who are senile. I think the Lord hears their prayers. And this one woman, she said, I, I had spent night after night with her and I would comb her hair during my break and I would talk to her about the love of Jesus and uh, one, that one, one night I said Lillian, Lillian Smith she's about 83 years old nobody ever came to visit her anymore I was the only one that was regular in her life and I said Lillian would you like to become a Christian would you like to believe in Jesus and she said yes <laughs> so I said Lillian pray after me and I said Lord um I know that you are there. And she prayed, Lord, I know that you are there. And then I said, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And she said, Lord, I know that you're a sinner. <laughs> and I thought, well, we're going to wing it the rest of the way. <laughs> and I think she prayed to believe the Lord. I, the prayers don't have to be perfect, but the heart needs to be right before the Lord. The sacrifices of our God. There's a little songs. I, I mentioned that in my family we sing rents hymns. We make little songs from the, from the psalms. And this one goes like this. The sacrifices of our God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The sacrifices of our God, O oh God, you will not despise. And I think Lillian Smith, with a contrite heart, broken understanding, a broken mind, I think that God understood her prayer. And even as a four-year-old kid, I think he understood mine too. 
But the David stories continue. Not only did he try to scout me when I was four, but he, he um, made me depart from my home when I was eight. He said to me one day, I must have been terrorizing him because he said, Mark, you are definitely adopted. <laughs> and uh, now this happens a lot. How many of you have had this story before that your brother or sister said you're adopted? Okay, no, 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 no. Now, this is a moment of confession for many of you. How many of you have said that to your younger brother or sister? All right, turn from your sins. Well, my brother was, not only said this, but he was extremely clever because he said, Mark, you're adopted. And of course, I said, no, I'm not. And he said, yes, you are. You don't look anything like the rest of us. And I said, I look just like you, and I look just like mom. And he said, you don't look like us at all. And I said, I do too, do not, do too, do not, do too. Went into the bathroom, said, come on. And I said, see, I look just like you. And he said, see, you don't look anything like us. So I said, well, I'm going to talk to mom. And he said, oh, good. You know what mom will say? She'll say, oh, honey, you're not adopted. Ooh. So I went to my mom and I said, Mom, David said that I'm adopted. And she said, Honey, you're not adopted. And I said, That's just what David said you'd say. So I went up into my room. My mom didn't know this. Again, she said, David, come here. And uh, she talked to David. Well, I went up to my room, which I shared with my brother. I took off my pillow from my pillowcase. Or, you know, I got my Sunday shoes. I got uh, my baseball glove, I sneaked down the back way, into the kitchen, got a banana, which was my favorite food at that time, put it in that bag, and I left. I didn't have far to go, because I didn't know where to go, it was almost supper time, and I went and I climbed a tree. I was there for a couple of hours, but the good part of the story is that I do look like my brother, uh, more now probably than ever. Um, and there's a question, sometimes I use that as an example, and it's a question of, who do you look like? Do you look like your father? Your father in heaven? Who do you look like? Who are you modeling? And it's no longer important if I look like David, or Stephen, or my mom or dad, but that we look like Jesus. And, and that's his job in our lives, to make us look like him. Well, they called out, Mark, Mark, come, you know, Mark, you're not adopted. And finally David had to go out and say, Mark, you're not adopted. And he got really uh, spanked quite liberally from that. <laughs> and when I found out that he had been punished, I felt really good. <laughs> and I came down and uh, I was welcomed back to my family. But I did a lot of stupid stuff like that when I was growing up. I, uh, crisis of uh, identity or whatever, but there was a guy named Dan who was about 17 years old, just about the same time. And he used to walk kind of like this. This was in Muskegon, Michigan. I don't know why that's important, but he used to walk like this. And so I thought, that guy looks so cool. He was kind of like James Dean at that time. I didn't know who James Dean was, but that guy looked really cool. And there were a lot of people that liked him, and so I started to walk like this. I was eight years old, and I started walking like this. But my mom and dad took me to the doctor. And they said, our son is really, look, look, he's really pigeon-toed. So I got corrective shoes. 
And they were, uh, yeah, they were almost $40 back at that time. It's like $200 now. And they were really clod hoppers, really ugly. And I had to walk like this, you know. And what I did was I started going like this, scuffing up my shoes to try to get rid of these things because I could walk like this, no problem. But I wanted to walk like this. I wanted to be like somebody else. I wanted to look like Dan. And uh, still I do that in my life. I find myself trying to look like or be like other people, not in the same way of, you know, you know that uh, old Rod Stewart song, Every Picture Tells a Story, combed my hair in a thousand ways, came out looking just the same. And you can't change the way you look. You can't change this very much. But, uh, you know, we still try to run after the world, whether it's um, uh, trying to look like somebody in your family or trying to look like somebody else. And um, I, I had a, a lot of lessons to learn. I, I, I struggled with that as a kid a lot. Um, at 10 years old, my father preached a message on hell and scared the hell out of me. He did. He did. He did. Truly, literally, I was under my bed, under my sheets, Monday morning, and crying, and uh, my parents, again, prayed for me. And when I was uh, 14 years old, my father resigned from the church, this church over here. And he resigned because um, his son was out of control now. I had had really good grades in seventh grade at Sierra Vista. Eighth grade, I got kicked out of, out of almost all my classes. Boy, I, don't, I was trying to behave like other people. I was trying to uh, be like Hector Reflector. There was a guy named Hector Nieblis, and I was trying to be like Hector Nieblis, I guess, or somebody else. And I really started getting into trouble. And my dad took the scriptures seriously, said, if I can't control my own family, I can't control the church. And the scriptures say, you can't be a pastor. Well, he never told me this because he was a good man. And he didn't hang this around my head and make me feel guilty about it. But he resigned at one of their board meetings with all the elders there and said, my son is out of control and I can't be your pastor anymore. And he was serious and he had a letter of resignation. And they said, Pastor, we haven't really prayed for Mark very much, but we're going to start praying for him because he's in trouble. And so... Uh, Let's, let's not have a meeting tonight. Let's have a prayer meeting for Mark. I didn't find this out until years and years later, the kinds of things that my dad had to go through for me. Not only did he have to pray for a little kid who was dying, but now he had to pray for a little kid who was ruining his ministry. And so, but you know, if my dad hadn't done the gutsy thing of resigning, I don't know. I was, I was really doing stupid things really fast. And I have a lot of respect for my father. He's not a perfect man. There's a distance between the private and the public man. There always is. But he was a good guy. And they prayed for me. And they, at every meeting that they had, they prayed for Mark Rents. That's a pretty sad thing. But I'm very glad for it. And within a year, my heart was melted. And it wasn't being scared of hell. And it wasn't wanting to go to heaven to be with my mom and dad. It was that I had come to see that there was, as Schaefer says, Francis Schaefer, there's a God that exists. There's a God that exists. And that summer, when, uh, when I was about 15 years old, still kind of young, I'm not a big philosopher at that age or anything, but I walked the hills. I walked back here by the church. There used to be a dirt road, now it's paved. And I walked back hills and the washes around here. And for one whole summer, I really struggled with who is Jesus Christ. 
and I started to read the Bible, I think truly for the first time. Because you see, I had been immunized against the gospel with a little bit of the gospel. You know how that is in the medical profession? You give just a little bit of God to somebody so they don't get God. Give a little bit of the measles to somebody so they don't get measles. And when I take trips sometimes overseas, you, and when you do that too, and you're afraid of getting malaria or something else, they give you just a little bit of this so that your body can fight it off. And that's what happened to me. I had grown up with the holy things of God so much that I no longer could hear them. They no longer meant anything to me. And I think that you're probably, some of you, I can promise, grew up in the same way if you grew up in the church. You handle the, you handle the sacred things of God so that eventually they almost, with repeat handling, become profane to you. And that's what happened to me. I, I got immunized against God. If you go to Europe today, you find a whole continent that got immunized against God through the state church. And, and uh, we need to really pray for them. It's also a very good way to talk to them about the Lord. I talked to a number of people from Spain and Germany and say, did you grow up in the church and get immunized against God? And they say, oh yeah, yeah, that happened to me. And I'll say, hey, me too. And just like C.S. Lewis's Pilgrim's Regress, I didn't go as a pilgrim on a progress to God. I left, and then I had to come around the back way. And then I ended up saying, God does exist, and I believed. Then when I was about 20 years old, I intellectually put some meat on that stuff, and I started reading Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis, and I had uh, a guy that was at this campus named Keith Lusk really... Uh, was a brilliant man. And I really thank God for apologists and for those who love the Word of God in a very deep way. Because I didn't want an existential emotional faith. I wanted an intellectual one now. Because, well, now it made sense. Because I'm at a university where I have to deal with these questions all the time. And where I'm, I'm outnumbered uh, quite a few to one. I don't know what the, the uh, ratio is. And I need reasons for my faith. And Keith and others really did that for me and they helped me. All right. I wanted to share a couple of other things as well. Um, something that I think is going to be very useful for many of you and was useful for me, and that was a, a uh, summer abroad or a year abroad experience. Um, I went to COC and then I wanted to leave California very badly. I just felt like I shouldn't be here. Said, the walls of Jericho fell down once and they're not going to be built back up. You've got to get out of here, really. It was very serious for me because I just, she was just a lovely girl and she wasn't going in my direction at all. And so I left. I ran away from California to Minnesota. And that junior year in Minnesota, I, uh, I don't think Bethel College is a really great spiritual place. I know it says... Uh, you know, it talks about Bethel as being a great place in the Bible, but it also says go to Bethel and sin at one point in the Bible, too. It's kind of weird. I think I did both. But uh, that junior year, I, I really started reading the scriptures, and I was all alone. If you're all alone in California right now, and you just came here, praise God, because there's somebody who wants to take a walk with you, and his name is Jesus. And I started walking around Lake Valentine, and I would literally say... You know, it was 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, and I would say, Jesus, you want to take a walk? And we would go out on walks, and I would walk with Jesus uh, at night. I, I, um, 
I took a lot of walks with the Lord. And I, I audibly just talked with the Lord. And I just had the best time being lonely and finding a lover uh, at that time. It was a very precious time for me. And uh, my heart was still very broken because of this girl. I asked her, well, why don't you come to Bethel? And she said no. And, and uh, I really struggled. And I asked God why for some of these things. And he just said, you are the potter. Uh, excuse me, you are the clay. I'm the potter. And you've got to be quiet and trust me on this one. And uh, we fought a little bit, but we kept taking walks. And we worked a lot of these things out. That year, or excuse me, that summer, I went to Japan. <coughs> And something really weird happened before I went. I knew that God wanted me to go, and I started to read the, the, uh, the journals, in a sense, or the life stories of um, Hudson Taylor. And we were told that we need to raise a lot of support. And if you know anything about Hudson Taylor, he didn't do that. Actually, he never told anybody about his financial needs. He knew that he needed to trust God and he wanted practice at doing that. And so he didn't tell anybody. And I really felt like I shouldn't tell anybody either. Uh, this isn't like a model for all of you to follow, but for some of you it will be. And the model was just tell Jesus, don't even insinuate, you know, don't write a... You know what I mean? I needed to know that God was really sending me and that I was there for a purpose. So I asked the Lord to provide all my needs and I didn't tell anybody about it. And but people knew that I was going to Japan, but I never said I needed $1,865, and I needed $1,865. And, and there was a friend of mine, who his father was a, a missionary in Japan. He grew up in Japan. And out of the blue, he said, Mark, God is going to give you all the money that you need to go there, and here's $100. And I love you, brother, and I'm glad you're going to go to Japan. And it, from that night, I just knew that God was going to meet all of my needs. And I got on my knees and I said, thank you, Lord. And uh, some other students, they took an offering uh, for those who were going to go out from the, the campus. And I got 500 more dollars. And But I was still about $1,500 short. Um, not quite, maybe about $1,200 short. And, and I left my college and uh, drove home and... and uh, I didn't know what the Lord was going to do, and some other people, they sent money, and I, I just let people know that I was going to go to Japan. Please pray for me. I'm going to Japan, and I gave a lot of information about Japan and what I was going to do, and that was it. Never once, not even a tricky way of mentioning money at all. And uh, my mom and dad were talking about this verse in Psalm 16, and it was a weird verse, we all concluded, and we talked about this verse. And the Lord brought this up because he was going to deal with me in this way. And he's deal dealt with me three times like this, and this is the first time. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. In the night seasons. And uh, we talked about that. that and uh, my, my mom is really like this. She'll wake up in the middle of the night, and she'll know that she didn't wake up for for just waking up, she woke up to pray for somebody and she's prayed a lot. And so I believe the nighttime is a time that's very important in a Christian's life, just as important as the daytime. And so a couple days later, I had a dream. It sounds a little weird, but I had a dream. And over the top of my head, there was a voice that said, it was the Lord God that said this. Uh, or an angel or someone I don't know it was over the top of my head and it was Mark 
you're going to get $2,165 for your trip to Japan. And I said, no, Lord, I need $1,865. And he said, you're going to get, it sounds like my brother and me. And the Lord said one more time, he said, uh, you know, the same number, 2,165. And I said, I need 1,865. And he said, the last time, the third time, you will receive 1,000, excuse me, $2,165 before you go to Japan. And I woke up in the morning and that number was very clear and I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And I thought that was so weird. And I talked to my mom and dad and they just said, hmm, okay. And that, that was it. From that day until the day I left to go to Japan, I received a lot of money from a lot of different people. I was teaching a fourth grade Sunday school class at my church, little kids. And they knew that I was going. I never asked these little kids for money. And they gave me about, oh, more than $10. No dollars, all change. <laughs> all change. Whole bunch of change. And they did it on several different Sundays. They gave me more and more money. And by the time I left, the morning I left, I had exactly to the penny, $2,165. And I counted nickels and pennies. And when I got to the last penny, and I had almost forgotten this, and that morning before I left, I just knelt by my bed and I just felt like Peter did when his net filled up with, with fish. I am a wicked man. I am a wicked man. I am sinful. I just had a sense of God's greatness and that I was a bad guy. And I, but I thought, Lord, I'm, every second that I'm in Japan, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to smoke up that place. Just let me go. Just let me go. I'm going to smile at everybody. And if I see somebody and they look at me, I'm going to pray for that person. And, I'm going to do, and I just was ready to go because the Lord had equipped me to go. And little did I know that the bicycle that was loaned to me, bicycles are never stolen in Japan, but mine was. And I bought another bicycle and replaced it. I didn't have any extra money. I did just what I needed. And I saw that our church didn't have a library, and I love books. And so I bought some C.S. Lewis books, and I bought Ayako um, um, uh, Mura, Shikari Toge books, and some things like that. And I started a little library for that church, and I used up all the money that, that the Lord had exactly for me. And uh, th this was a step of faith and a time of great uh, learning for me. When I got back from Japan, I started reading, devouring the journals of Jim Elliot. How many are familiar with Jim Elliot? You read something, oh my goodness. He is no fool, right? He gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I was just really, really, really in love with uh, these journals of Jim Elliot. They were so impassioned and I wanted that spirit as well. And I came across something in the journals of Jim Elliot. Mark and I were talking about it before I, we came here tonight. Ay, 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 ay. Um, and it was that Jim Elliot had read in the book of Genesis about Adam and that Adam had uh, been put to sleep in the will of God and a woman was brought to him who was a suitable companion and he did this very thing that encouraged me to do that too and I wrote on the wall in my dorm I quit and I dated it and I thought, Lord, I'm not going to date anyone again. I'm not going to date anyone again. Um, there were a couple of people that I was dating and they were very nice and there was nothing that I should do with these people at all. 
And I just thought, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm wasting my time and wasting theirs, and I'm looking around like, maybe that one. No, maybe that. I mean, I, what was I doing? You know, I, and I, I felt like I was just being silly. So I just said, Lord, please put me to sleep in your will. And uh, during that time, help me to mold my character to become a better man. And I want you to bring a woman to me who will be a suitable companion for me. I don't know what she's going to look like. I don't know anything about this person. She can be smarter, taller, anything, anything. You bring the suitable companion for me. And, and when you want to do it, now this is very scary stuff. Because we like to give God little things that are not of great consequence. But if you give, like, the color of your wife's hair, and the height, and the stature, and the intelligence, and the abilities, and the gifts, and all of these things, you're really vulnerable. And I decided that that was probably the best place to be really vulnerable before God, because I knew who I was at the age of 22, but who was I going to be at the age of 32? And who was I going to, in the world, be at the age of 42, or 52, or 62, or 72, or however long I lived? I had no idea who I was going to be like. And so I asked the Lord, would you pick the person for me? And I quit. I really quit. And it was a very nice time for me to quit. I quit for quite a while. And you know, it's really weird that my wife, now Barbara, also quit at the same time. Very weird. We both quit. And I met her in very unusual, weird circumstances, very strange. It was uh, not looking at all. And boom, there she was, and that was it. And uh, I would not have married that person unless I had prayed that prayer, because she's not my image. She was not the... She didn't... Well, she was different than what I had imagined. And she was much better than what I had imagined. And she has been a suitable companion beyond anything. She's very hard and very tough in all the ways that I need her to be that way for me. And she has made me uh, grow in the Lord so much. And my prayer is that I may esteem her, that she may uh, reflect the glory of God. So these are just a few little things. There are a few others. But you know, in the end, I want to encourage you to really put your life in God's hands. This is the, the little story of a life. This is my little life. You will never see me again, probably. But look how God handled this little boy who had spherocytosis, this little boy who almost got scalped, this little boy who climbed a tree, this little boy who's walking like this, this little child lost in this world. And God loved me as he loves you. And he wants to take a walk with you. And he wants you to date him and he wants to date you, and I mean date. I, I, I have an a, a idea of God as being a lover almost more than any other concept. He's, he's called us out of Egypt. Come away with me, my love. Come away. You've heard the Keith Green song, come away, come away with me, my love. This is our God. He says, come away with me. It's a very romantic picture, really. And uh, he's prepared a place for us. It's quite, well, you know, this is a challenge for men because we are the bride, right? People say, you know, the Bible's not very feministic. You're, but, you know, men have to suffer quite a bit with this concept and deal with this. That we are the bride. It's very, it's a big challenge. And for us to be submissive unto God and to let him love us. 
Now, I believe in the spiritual disciplines, and I'm going to finish with this. The spiritual disciplines, and I think there are two kinds, the disciplines of abstinence and the disciplines of engagement. Dallas Willard in his book, Celebration, no, 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 uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines, has written that there are two kinds of disciplines. And they're not works-based. They're exercises, like going into the weight room to build up your spiritual muscles to be holy. When the Lord was led into the wilderness by Satan, he wasn't led there because Satan was a masochist. Satan wanted to just see how we could get this, this Son of God to be. He wanted Jesus to be at his strongest, at his very, 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 very strongest. So he secluded him from others. Abstain from sound and noise. Abstain from people. Abstain from all of these things to engage at the same time. It's, we don't fast just to abstain from food. We fast to feed on God. We abstain so that we can engage. It's very perverted if you just say abstain, 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 don't do this because, you know, it's, no, we don't do this because we want something more. We want something great. We want God. We want to eat God. We want to eat His flesh and drink His blood. And he said in John 6, unless you do that, you can't have any part of me. What does that mean? Engage is what it means. Engage in God. Abstain and eat his flesh and drink his blood and eat him and have him as your own. And so these disciplines that Jesus engaged in, he was going to have the greatest power encounter of all time. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit knew just what to do. Abstain and engage in God. Jesus wasn't weak at that time. He was at his strongest. I, I know you've heard messages like that. They're wrong. I really think they are. Jesus was strong because Satan knew what was ahead of him. Satan was ahead and he made the Son of Man, Son of God, very strong in exercises. He went to the spiritual weight room for a long time. And we need to go to that same weight room. If you don't like the idea of disciplines because it's a dirty word, think of it as dating. That's how I view it. Date. God, which basically means get in his path when he's walking along like Zacchaeus did. Here comes Jesus along the trail. Zacchaeus got in his path. And that's what you do when you read the Bible in the morning. Here comes Jesus and you know he always travels along the path of his word. Get in that way and read it and pray and do this, 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 the weird things that I do if you want to. It's okay. I have about a hundred little songs. They're love songs to Jesus and almost nobody's heard any of them including my wife. They're not for public consumption. But I say, Daddy, I have a new song for you. Do you want to hear it? And I'm a daddy, and I want to hear the songs. I want to see the pictures that my little girl draws for me. They are the best in the world. Picasso, Michelangelo, they have nothing on my daughter. She's an artist. Right? And that's how our God is with us. He loves your artwork. He loves your songs. He loves your poetry. He loves to take walks with you. Take him out for a hamburger. Really. Take him out. I call them the spiritual disciplines. But if you will, call it dating. It means separating yourself from the television. And you know what? I have to do this with my wife as well. Separate myself from the TV to be with my wife and to do the things that please her. You want my wife's definition of love or why she knows that I love her? 
This is the definition that she gave me. It's because I take out the garbage, and when I come back, I put the bag in the empty basket. I was really disappointed. She said, honey, do you know why I know you love me? And I was waiting for this. It's because of that poem I wrote to you. I have loved you now one winter, all more seasons of your love. Right? Wasn't it that? Wasn't it that? And she said, no, it's this. You you know that you always take out the garbage because that's kind of your responsibility. But you almost always forget to put the bag in the garbage can when you come back. And I've noticed that you've been doing that and you're taking me into account. I'm very romantic, aren't I? <laughs> but how does Jesus know you love him? You know he loves you. Take him out for a hamburger. Take a walk with him. Sing a song to him. And break his heart with your love. Because he is worthy of your love. I'm going to sing one little song for you and then I'm, I'm out of here. And this is a song for the king. It goes like this from Revelations. You are worthy to take the scroll. Remember this one? And to open its seals. For you were slain, you were slain and have redeemed us to God. By your blood, by your blood, you have redeemed us to God. From every tongue and every tribe and people and nation, you've made us kings, made us kings, kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign, we shall reign as kings and priests to our God. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, you were slain, and have redeemed us to God. By your blood, by your blood, you have redeemed us to God.